Thank you, William. Good, good morning, church. It's good to see you yet again. Glad that you are here. Uh, listen, we are going to extend our worship through giving, and so you guys are going to find offering baskets on the left side uh, of your row. If you would go ahead and pass those over to the right, we'll continue to worship the Lord with our tithes and offerings. Uh, and all this month, if you've been here, you know we're in a special giving emphasis called Give United. Uh, we have made a commitment that once we read, uh, reach our monthly budget, every penny over that this month is going to get poured out uh, on local ministry partners. And we've been spotlighting some of those partners. And this morning, we have a new one as well. I just want to invite uh, Jenny Waltman, if you would, to go ahead and come up and join us, if you will. Uh, Jenny works with Grace Klein, uh, and that might be a name that you guys are familiar with. Uh, they have been working all over the city for a long time now. And uh, Jenny's here to tell us a little bit uh, just about what you guys do uh, and kind of how we've been involved and how we can be involved. Double O, thank you so much for having us. Such a privilege to be here and give you a report of God's incredible faithfulness from your generosity to Grace Klein community. Grace Klein means little gift from God, and every time we share a box of food, that's a little gift. But the amazing part is every time we share food, people ask us why. And then we get to share Jesus. He's the big gift. He is with us when the food is gone. Grace Klein Community became a 501c3 in April 2010. We have always primarily focused on food support to build relationships with people. We also provide diaper and wipe support, school supplies, and Christmas. We build community in all that we do, whether through volunteerism, praying for every person who comes through our food drive-thrus, or community gatherings at one of our four community homes. Double Oak began investing in Grace Klein in 2017. In six years, y'all have generously invested $23,000. Check out this growth. In 2017, we had eight food donors. This year, we have 201 food donors. Last year, we rescued over a million pounds of food. And this year, we're on target to rescue 2 million pounds of food. In 2017, food delivery was once a month. Today, volunteers deliver food to families every week. We fuel eight drive through locations, provide food to 136 food distribution partners, which allows us to provide food support seven days a week. In 2017, we fed 70,000 people, reaching two counties. This year, we have fed 277,125 people and touched the food insecure in 39 counties. Mm-hmm. Our serve teams have been invaluable, and we have likely at least had 20 serve teams in 2017. In 2022, we've had 63 serve teams, and volunteers have given over 31,000 hours of time, which proves that we are a volunteer-driven organization. All these donated hours save a million dollars in wage savings for 2022. The last fascinating stat, we had no interns in 2017, and this year we've already had 125 interns. (laughs) Why do I share this information with you? Because we share resources to build relationships for the purpose of restoration in individuals, families, and entire communities. Every box of food is an open door to share Christ. Every intern is a discipleship opportunity to develop to develop next generation leaders. Every food rescue pickup is an opportunity to love a stranger and be a faithful steward of God's resources. 
Why are we excited about Double Oak investing in us? Because these results are the fruit of your contributions. They're fruit of your prayers. So when you hear or see God doing something at Grace Klein, you can whisper a prayer to God. Thank you for letting us be a part of your work in Birmingham. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We have not given up and look what God has done in six years. Y'all, I don't even have time to tell you the stories of God's restoration in the hearts of people, families, and entire communities because God taught us to share resources and build relationships. And look what he is doing. He is doing God math. He is doing exponentially more than we can hope for or imagine. And so we will not give up. We will reap a harvest. Don't get tired of doing good, my friends. The results are coming. The fruit is starting to break forth on the trees. Believe the impossible. God is just getting started. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much. Listen, I'm excited about people who are excited. I mean, look. Man, I mean, I, we, we, I, I like that. Uh, listen, it's exciting to know that these are the kind of things that God is doing, but also he's continuing to do. I hope you noticed that. It's not just what's happening now. It's what's been growing over the past six years, which means there's more work to be done. All right, this is why we want to continue to partner with Grace Klein and so many other people in the area. Uh, and so look, uh, let me tell you kind of where we are right now in our giving. Uh, so after two weeks in September, uh, we are up to $98,000. Our budget is 251. We got to reach that before we start giving to other people, which means we got work to do. All right, look, now this was before the 15th because I know a lot of us get paid on the 15th. You might tithe on the 15th. I know I do. Uh, and, and so that we didn't kind of include that in the total. So that'll bump up a little bit over a hundred, But again, let me put out that challenge. This is the opportunity for us to say, hey, I want to give faithfully. Even if that's not your normal practice, let's practice for one month. And so you can see just how generous we can be. But this does not fall on the heads of one or two large givers. This is something we should all be doing. This is how kind of how we learn to see what God is going to be doing through us. And so thank you for those of you who are already giving. But for the rest of us, let's all jump in. Even if you're an attender, try this out for one month and say, I want want to give that tithe back to the Lord and watch and see what the Lord can do through that. It is quite literally transforming a city and we get to be a part of it. Let's say a quick prayer for Grace Klein and all of our other ministry partners. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of joining you and literally bringing your kingdom to come. This is how we put hands and feet to that, Father. You give us these opportunities. You give us these resources. You bless us that we might be a blessing. And Lord, I'm so thankful for Grace Klein community and all the things that they have been doing. You clearly have even bigger dreams for them and we pray that you would fulfill them and use us, Father, as we provide resources, not just with our our money, but also with our time, our investment, our prayers, uh, our, our volunteering. Lord, that we would walk alongside brothers and sisters all across this city, Grace Klein and all these other organizations. God, as you do your work, God, give us very practical, specific ways to join us. And Father, just bless us as we, as we follow you in faithfulness this month. Father, we want to see you glorified in all of that. But we pray a blessing upon the GraceCon community, uh, their leadership, their volunteers, and all of the people that they are serving all across our state. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.
Amen. All right, grab your Bibles if you will. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to be as we continue our new series on worldview. If you were here last week, we kicked this series off and we learned that you and I live in a world system, a human system of ideas and values that has set itself up against the Lord and his kingdom. We're not talking about individual people. We're just talking about the collective kind of human system because we are a part of fallen humanity. We live in a world whose values and ideas have set itself against the Lord and his kingdom. So we're taking the rest of the semester to find out, well, then how do I see the world properly? How do I see the world the way God sees it? Instead of living by the world's values, how do I live by Christ's values? And so we're going to take some weeks to really look at that. What does it mean to have a Christian worldview? And then after that, we're going to evaluate the views of the world. We're going to say, how do I interact with those values? How am I supposed to respond uh, or answer those values? And we'll be looking at those um, as well. But before we can do any of that, before we can really get into all of these things that we need to learn and process through, uh, there's a foundation we actually need to look at, and it relates to something that I just did. If you guys have been here any length of time, you might have noticed that I start all of my sermons the exact same way. There's something I'm going to say every single time, and it's going to be grab your Bibles and let's turn to X. And then I'm going to give you a biblical passage and we're going to look that, look at it. And hopefully you've got your copy of God's word there and you are looking at that passage. And that's important because everything that we're going to do for the rest of this series, I'm going to do that very same thing. I'm going to point you towards the Bible, but we have to answer a foundational question because if you don't actually trust the Bible, then nothing I'm going to say for the rest of this series can actually help you very much. If you don't actually believe in what the Bible has to say, then it doesn't matter that we continually look back to this word. And so before we get into all these things, we need to ask a very simple question. And that is, what is this? What is this thing that we call the Bible? What is it? And you might have a, a quick answer to that. You might say, Adam, what's the word of God? And that is accurate. But the bigger question is, is do we truly believe that? And what does that really mean for us? Is this actually the word of God? And if it is, then what does that mean for you and for me? Because if this is the very word of God, then that transforms everything. And so I want us to talk about the Bible today. And before we even look into the Bible, I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to imagine a time when there wasn't a Bible. That occurred, by the way. There's a time in existence where there was not a Bible, where you couldn't go get one. That's weird to me. I grew up here in the South. I grew up going to church. There has never been a day when I didn't, I couldn't just hear the Bible or talk about the Bible. There were Bibles everywhere. Do you realize that people over the years have left a bunch of Bibles? They're sitting right back here behind connections. I saw them the other day. All right. We're trying to shame you. Pick up your Bibles. All right. So yeah, go grab those. Right. But I mean, they're everywhere. You can get a Bible for us. It's just normal. Imagine a time when there was no Bible, but you actually wanted to know who God was. What would you do? How would you get to know God if there was no Bible? How would you do that? Because you have a problem. As a finite person, how do you even begin to understand an infinite deity? Furthermore, you and I are mortals. We are fairly powerless. How are you going to force an immortal God who is all powerful to tell you anything? 
to show you anything. You and I can't. How would you and I know anything about God? How would we understand anything about God if we did not have a Bible? Well, there's really only two ways that you can learn about God, and we actually make use of both of them. The first way that you can learn about God is this. You can learn about God through general revelation. You can learn about God through something that we call general revelation. That's when you and I can learn about God just by looking at creation, just by looking at reality. Look at this in Romans chapter one. Paul talks about this. He's talking about non-believers and he says this, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He says, even if people don't believe in God, you ought to know that there's a God. Just look around recognize that you could not have made this. Somebody made this and he must be powerful. He must also appreciate beauty for look at what he has made. Eternal qualities of God can simply be perceived. Look at Psalm 19. It says that heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's a beautiful psalm. It's one of the first psalms ever memorized in its entirety, talking about creation and and the heavens and the sun and the moon and, and how they proclaim God's glory. You can see some things about God just by looking around at creation. I think this is what people mean, by the way, when sometimes people say, Adam, I don't need to go to church. The outdoors is my sanctuary. Hey, you ever heard that before? Adam, I just want to go outdoors. The outdoors is my cathedral. The outdoors is my sanctuary. And, and look, I can kind of get what you're saying there. Because you look around and you say, yeah, Adam, I can learn some things. There's an awe and there's a beauty when you, you see a vista, when you see God's creation, when you see these things. I mean, it can be very spiritual. You can learn some things about God just by looking at creation. Johann Kepler was an uh, astronomer back in the early uh, 17th century. Uh, he uh, came up with the three laws of planetary motion. We actually named a planet hunting telescope after him a few years back. If that name Kepler rings a bell for any of you, uh, but he was one of the early scientists. And as he thought, went through his astronomy and he was talking about science, he described it this way. He said, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Isn't that great? It's thinking God's thoughts after him. So as he is studying the heavens and figuring out these intricate laws and how the universe works, it is making him glorify God. He says, man, I'm beginning to understand a little bit more about what God did. I'm thinking God's thoughts after him. And so by looking at the world and understanding the world, you can learn some things about God. But general revelation only goes so far. You can learn some things about God by general revelation, but you can't learn everything simply by looking at creation. Think about uh, a famous painting, all right? Think about the Mona Lisa or a Picasso or a Rembrandt or, or whatever that might be. All right, by looking at that painting, just by looking at that painting, you can know a couple things about this artist, but not much more. You wouldn't even know his or her name unless they put it at the bottom of the page. And then what if they don't? All you have is a work of art. What can you tell? 
You can't tell when they were born or when they died. You can't tell where they grew up. You don't know what language they spoke. You don't know what their upbringing was like. You don't know what things they did other than painting or creating art or these kind of things. You know next to nothing about this person except that they made this thing. You can't really know that author. You can know a couple things, but you can't know the deep things of the Lord. And so you can't just get to know God through general revelation. If you truly want to know God, you need something more. You need special revelation. You need special revelation. And that's what this is. Special revelation is when God chooses to reveal himself to us. It's not something we're just inferring by looking at creation. No, God is choosing to reveal himself. He is taking an effort. He is choosing to reveal himself to us. That's what the Bible is. This is God choosing to reveal himself to us. Now, think about that for just a second. Because whenever it comes to the Bible, we all have questions, right? We have things that we want to know, things we want to understand, things that are hard to understand. And we kind of just jump into those. Yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? Before we get into those, all that's important. But before we get to that, stop for a moment and think about this thing that you can hold. That the God of the universe chose on purpose to reveal himself to you. He chose on purpose to make himself knowable understandable. He is taking his infinity and giving it to us in a way that you and I can actually understand. And so look at this in John chapter one, verse one. Notice what it says here. This is the first verse of the gospel of John. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's hearkening back to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the beginning of the gospels. He says, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. The word was with God and the word was God. Now, the Greek word behind that word, word, follow me here, uh, is the word logos or logos. And it was a word that was in vogue at the time in philosophy, and and it meant a lot of different things. Some people described it as rationality. Uh, Some people talked about uh, kind of a unifying principle of the universe. Uh, Some people even would use the term science uh, to kind of to kind of describe what this word means. But but inherent in the word, it must be expressed. It can't just be there. It, It is personal. It has to be expressed. Hence, word. And so listen to what God says. He says, I am the word of God, not a color, not a picture, not a number, a word, which means I want you to understand me. I want you to know me. This is how God's going to describe himself. He says, I want you to know me. I'm going to special effort to reveal myself to you. And why would he do that? Well, we've already sung about it today because he loves you. He's not doing that to lord it over you. He was doing that already. He, he, was, he, was, he could do anything he wanted. He says, no, I'm going to make myself knowable, understandable, relatable to you. Why? Because I love you. The God of the universe loves you so much that he took time to reveal himself to you and I. And that is what this book is. This is God revealing himself to us. You can see all of this in miniature in an incident in the Bible uh, on Mount Sinai. 
when God delivers his people from Egypt, he, he loves them. He comes and rescues them by, by a supernatural deliverance. He takes them to a mountain and Moses is going to go up by himself on this mountain. There's smoke and fire on the mountain. It's very terrifying. But God gives him the Ten Commandments. Two tablets written on by the very finger of God. And Moses comes down with these commandments, these laws. God is saying, this is how you live with me. This is how you honor me. This is how you and I are going to have a relationship together. God says, I'm going to make myself knowable. I'm going to make myself understandable. Now, the people were terrible at actually following said laws. But don't miss the fact that before they disobeyed, God was making an effort. He says, I want to show you who I am. I want to show you what this is. And that's basically what he's doing with the Bible. Not two tablets, but 66 books collected together that we call the Holy Bible. God's holy word, his self-special revelation to you and I. Now, look, in one sermon today, I cannot possibly answer all of the questions, including, well, Adam, how did we get those 66 books? How did that come to be? We actually did an entire class on this at DOU uh, last year. Well, I'm sure we'll do that again. Will Collins taught that. There are also some other articles that you can read to kind of say, why do we get these 66 books? But when we talk about the Bible, this is what we're talking about. God revealing himself to us. But now that we know that that's what this is, there's a few things about the Bible that we need to really wrestle with. Few things that we really need to understand. There's a lot about the Bible, but here are three things that are crucial. They are these. It is that the Bible is holy, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative. Let that sink in. The Bible is holy, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative. It is holy. It is made by God and not by man. It is inerrant. It does not contain error in its original manuscripts. And it is authoritative, not merely informative. God gives this word to us and we are to submit to it because it is holy and inerrant. This is God's holy word to us. Now, already, I imagine you got questions. Right? You got a little questions popping here. Yeah, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And we're going to look at a couple of those today. And there's all kinds of resources to help us deal with all of these questions. But I want you to wrestle with that. But at the very least, understanding that God has gone to this effort of revealing himself to you. I might encourage you, even the most skeptical among us, to remain open. And say, could this actually be God's holy, inerrant, authoritative word? And so let's look at those three things today. First off, the fact that the Bible is holy. What does that mean? It means that this is not simply a man-made book. This book is different from every other book that is on your bookshelf. There has never been a book before like it. There will never be a book uh, like it ever again. It is holy and therefore supernatural. Why? Because it is not simply written by men. It is written by God. They might say, well, how does that work? Because Adam, last time I checked, I I think that we didn't just like find this in a field, right? It didn't just like drop down from heaven. These aren't like, you know, tablets that were given to somebody. I think guys actually wrote this down. So I think it is actually written by men. And the answer to that question is both yes and no. Yes, it is written by men, very particular men. But here's how the Bible describes it. Look at this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, now this is interesting. 
All right, because when these men are writing scripture, they're not going into a trance. It's not like their eyes roll back in their head and they're like, you know, and they just wrote it down like, look, the Bible, you know, and you get like this thing. No, it's actually a part of them. Like their personality is involved. Their, Their life and their background is involved. But that doesn't mean that everything they wrote was scripture either. God chooses people at certain points and he says, through your particular personality, I'm going to do something special to mark these writings out and I'm going to be moving through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God pouring his truth through personality. And so that's why we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Hopefully you're there in your text. We're finally going to get there. I'll put this up on the screen too. Kick back up to verse 14. And look at what it says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16 is the big one. If you don't already have this underlined in your Bible, you should, all right? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you see now why we open up the Bible every single week? Why we turn to the Lord and his word every single week. But go back to that first slide. Let's look at verse 15 and notice what it says. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Not just the writings. They're sacred. They're holy. Why? Look at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. This is not simply the invention of man. God is speaking through people. God is speaking through his word. And so these are God-breathed words. This is why we elevate these words. We treat them differently from all the other words that we read, all the other books that we read. Why? Because this is God's holy word. And so the question is, does that bear up to scrutiny? Can we say, Adam, these wor- this book is different. These words are different. And look, we could talk about this for hours today. But just to begin, we can at least look at this book and recognize that, yes, there is no other book like the Bible. There has never been a book like the Bible. Think about the Bible in its entirety and try to put it all together. Don't just think about a work or a a, a letter. I want you to think about the entire Bible itself and recognize a few things. It took over 1,500 years to write the Bible. Let that sink in. From first to end, it takes 1,500 years to write the Bible. It has over 40 different authors. 40 different authors from 40 different generations from different walks of life. It is written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It was written on three different continents. You got Africa, Asia, and Europe. Also, it's written in multiple genres. It's not the same type of letter. You've got history, you've got prophecy, you've got law, you've got poetry, you've got gospels, you've got letters, you've got an apocalypse, and all these are different. It's not even the same kind of genre. And all of this, even though it is so different from across all the ages, from across all the personalities, from across all the the places and the languages, it speaks on tons of different topics with a continuity. How do you do that if it is not God-breathed? I dare you to find any five of your Facebook friends and see if they can agree on any four things at once. Good luck. 
You can't do that in today's day and age. And somehow God has spoken throughout almost two millennia to all these different people to bring this all back up together. It is an unbelievable, unique work that God has brought together. Here's the second way we know that this is a holy book because it contains predictive prophecy. It tells the future and the future happens. Anybody can tell the future. But when it happens, okay, now that lends a little bit more credence. Uh, Look at this in Luke chapter 24. This is Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. This is Jesus after the resurrection. He's speaking to his disciples really for the first time. And he says, then he said to them, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus begins walking them through and showing them all the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. There's tons of them, by the way. People disagree on exactly how many prophecies. It depends on how detailed you want to get. It's not two. It's not a hundred. It's somewhere in the 40 to 60 range. And Jesus starts marking through these and says, do you see how I have fulfilled all of these prophecies? Now, a couple of those you can game the system. When it says the Messiah will say this, well, you just say that and boom, I've fulfilled a prophecy. But there's some of these you can't do that. Like when you're going to be born, where you're going to be born, what your parents are going to do while you're an infant or how people are going to torture you to death. You typically don't get to choose that. These things just happen outside of your control. Jesus says throughout all of this time, all of these prophecies, I am the fulfillment of all of them. What marks this book out from other books is because it contains predictive prophecy and it comes true. The Bible itself attests that it is holy. Jesus calls it holy. It has been proven to be that throughout history. This is not simply a man-made book. It is not simply a religious tome or, or something to give us religious education. It is God-breathed. Therefore, it is holy. Do you consider the Bible to be holy? Here's the second thing. It is inerrant. It is inerrant. Now, this is a fairly technical term, and what it means is it does not contain any error. But we need to get very particular in what we're talking about here. Because we're talking about the Bible, I am usually not talking about this particular and specific copy of the Bible. We're talking about the Bible being inerrant. We're talking about in its original manuscripts, because this is not the original manuscript. I hope you already knew that, because Jesus didn't speak English, right? So there's no way that this can actually be every single word he wrote because he wasn't speaking English. Instead, this is a translation of the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic that was originally written down. When we're talking about the inerrancy of the Bible, we're talking about the inerrancy of the original autographs as they were first written. Now, here's the other thing we need to understand. We don't actually have any of those originals, There is no museum that you can go to in the world where you can actually see what John originally wrote, right? Or what Paul originally wrote. There's no copy of the original letter to the Philippians. Instead, what we have are copies. Particularly, we have copies of copies, right? So actually copies of copies of copies. We call these things manuscripts, but we don't have the originals. Now, I can already tell this. Some of you are getting very nervous, right? You're like going, really? That's all we got? Because that doesn't sound too accurate. Because Adam, when I was growing up, I played this game called Telephone. Anybody ever played that game? 
I remember growing up and they had all these kids and I was one of them. They put me in a circle and they talked to one. They whispered in one ear over here at the end. And they said, the red elephant is coming at dawn. And then I was supposed to like, you know, say that to the person in their ear. And then they still said to somebody else and they whispered to somebody else and they whispered to somebody else. And by the time you got to the end, it says the purple kangaroo will leave tomorrow. You're like, that's not what we said. That's not at all what we said. Dude, it started at one thing, but you pass it down through 20 different people and it ends up something else. And if all we got is manuscripts, all we have is copies of copies, how can I possibly have any confidence that this is actually what was written? And the reason is because we have so many manuscripts. Now, a manuscript is one of these copies, and that can be anything as small as a little scrap of paper to entire books. We would call both of those a single manuscript. And we have been collecting these for 2,000 years. Here's what you need to understand. The Bible is the most attested ancient work that has ever existed. We have over 25,000 manuscripts for the Bible. 5,000 of them in the New Testament are in the original Greek. When you're talking about all other ancient works, you're talking in the tens, maybe. If you don't want to believe in the accuracy of the Bible, you need to throw out all of Western civilization. All of it. Plato, Aristotle, doesn't matter. Throw them all away. All the history that we know about of the ancient world, throw it all away. We have so few copies of any of these works. With the Bible, we have Thousands of these works. Furthermore, as we go through, you will find that some of these manuscripts have mistakes. I don't know you said it was an errand. How, how, if the copies have mistakes, then how can I have any confidence in it? Because when you have this many copies, it's easy to see what the mistakes are. If you've got 10 copies of a sentence and it all says the same thing, but on the 10th one, there's a word misspelled. Guess what happened? That guy misspelled a word. But I got nine other things. You can clearly see what happened. These are clerical errors. Sometimes people misspell a word because a a letter looks like another letter. Sometimes they're they're copying it by eye and, and they just skip a line entirely. But it's really easy to see those errors when you have so many manuscripts. It clears those things up. There's only a few verses where you actually have a little bit of disagreement about what it actually says, and there's not a single doctrine of the church that rests on those verses. But we take this very seriously. You can actually see this in your Bible. If you look at the end of the Gospel of Mark, I'll put this up on the screen. This is the last verse in actual Mark, and then there's a note in my Bible. I preach for the ESV, by the way. And notice what it says. It says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, there's some verses after that, but you get this note prior and notice what it says. It says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include 19, 9 through 20. Here's what that says. As we continue to collect manuscripts and we date these things and you see the earliest manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts don't have these verses. It's very possible somebody has added these in later. What does that do for us? Well, it means I'm not putting a whole lot of weight on those verses. I'm not going to build any theology out of those verses. I'm not going to kind of hold those verses like I hold the rest of the scriptures in high esteem. We have so many of these manuscripts. You can actually look at them and say, I can speak with authority, with confidence that this is actually the word of God. And guess what? You know what hasn't happened over the past 2000 years? We haven't found like radically different versions of Philippians. 
It's not like, you know, later on, a couple hundred years ago, we found a brand new Philippians and it's got 18 verses and it said it was written by Bob and it was doing this over here and it was actually written to a different city. It's got all these different verses. Nothing like that happens. Instead, the opposite has occurred. The more that we find, it actually corroborates what we already have. Since the last time I preached a sermon, they have found 2,000 more manuscripts. It's up to 27,000 now. We continue to find these things to where you can say, even though these are copies of copies, you can have confidence that what you are reading is actually what was originally written, that this is the very word of God. Now, look, I am very aware. There's so many other questions. You've got a lot of questions that come up and I can't possibly answer all those today, but you've got a lot of questions. Adam, what about the contradictions? Really? Let's actually look at these contradictions and see what kind of contradictions they are. Let's look at the genre. Let's see what's happening. Let's say if this is one of those manuscript errors, but we can actually look at these piece by piece. You say, Adam, well, you can't take the Bible literally like that. It might be holy in these things. You actually can't take it literally. Well, yes and no. You should take the literal parts literal and you should take the metaphorical parts as metaphors. Why? Because that's what we do with reality. Reality, right? So you've got that one there as well. He said, Adam, what about the different interpretations? People have all kinds of different interpretations. Yes, they do. But some interpretations are better than others. This is why we study, by the way. This is why I'll tell you things like the Greek word says. Why? We want to study and learn and look at the entirety of scripture and look at the context in which it lives and compare it to other verses in scripture to see that continuity play out. This is why we spend so much time diving into the word to find that interpretation that really accords with with what God's intended. But Adam, what about the dinosaurs? You knew that was coming, right? But what about the dinosaurs, Adam? Listen, here's what you need to understand. The Bible is not Wikipedia. It's not. It is not here to be an encyclopedia of all world knowledge. It is not here to tell you every single thing that has ever happened. That is not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible is here to reveal God to us. And so naturally there will be things that it's not going to mention. You said, but Adam, what about science? Science is no, no enemy of the Bible, is no enemy of religion. Remember Kepler and what we said earlier before, but science also can't tell you what the Bible can. The Bible's not here to give you all an explanation of science, but here's the deal. Science also can't explain to you the meaning of life. And sometimes science likes to speak beyond things that it can actually tell. See, science can only build off of data and empirical things that it can test and model. Well, if you can't actually go and test God and you can't test the spiritual realm, then you have no data, which means you should be silent. You see, there are things that science can't speak to that the Bible actually can. And I actually should trust what God says even beyond that. So look, I know that doesn't answer all the questions and there are many more after that. But what the Lord is showing us is that in its original manuscripts, what we have here is the inerrant word of God. But here's the third thing. It's authoritative. It's authoritative. If the Bible is holy and inerrant, then it's not simply informative. It's authoritative. It means that God is speaking and therefore we should listen. I don't stand in authority over the Bible. The Bible stands in authority over me if this truly is the word of God. And this is, by the way, how Jesus thought of this. Imagine Jesus coming to earth. He's the son of God. He is his own source. He doesn't have to quote anybody because he is the truth. He never says anything wrong. He can say whatever he wants because he is God himself. And yet when you read the gospels, you'll find him constantly referring back to scripture. So look at this. Here's Mark chapter 12. It says, Jesus said to the Sadducees, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. We looked at this last week. 
He said, your interpretation is terribly wrong. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures. Go to the next one. Here's Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, have you not read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. He is quoting the Old Testament scripture. Go to the next one. Uh, this is Luke 24. We just looked at this, but look at the middle here. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's talking about the major categories of Old Testament scripture. You get the law, you get the prophets, and Psalms are a part of the wisdom literature. He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus will quote almost every single Old Testament book during his gospel ministry. What is he doing? He is letting you know this is the word of God. It carries weight. It is authority. He affirms its history. He affirms its miracles. He says this is the very word of God. You see, yeah, but what about, what about the New Testament? And that's all Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, God speaks through his apostles. That's the ones who traveled him, minus Judas, but plus Paul. He speaks through his apostles. And right off the bat, the early Christians saw those works as scripture. Go to the next slide here. Uh, here's a bunch of different examples of this. Uh, Clement of Rome, his late first century, uh, he knew many of the apostles. He writes a letter to the Corinthians. Uh, and when he's referring back to the synoptic gospels, he calls them scripture. Polycarp, early second century, he was a disciple of John, the apostle. When he talks about both Old Testament and New Testament works, works of Paul, as the rest of the apostles, he calls them scripture. These, there's more, Ignatius, the Didache, the shepherd of Hermas. These are all early second century. This is hundreds of years before the Council of Nicaea, where they're going to actually make like the formal list. Within a few years of these things being written, the early Christian community looked back and said, these works are different. These works are scripture. These works are the very word of God. They wouldn't take anything if it claimed to be from an author that it wasn't, but they looked to the honest, true apostles and said, this is the word of God. And if it's the word of God, then it is authoritative. So put all that together. If the word of God is holy and an errand and it's authoritative, it means that this book is so much more than just a great way of learning a couple of facts. It actually talks to us about our present experience. Look at Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13. It says, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to who we must give account. This is a fascinating passage where he's quoting the Psalms, which are then quoting before an incident back in Numbers. And he's saying God was speaking way in the early history of the people of Israel. He was speaking hundreds of years later when he spoke to David in the Psalms. He was speaking right then in the first century to the writer of the Hebrews, which means he's still speaking today. When you and I interact with the Bible, we are not simply learning facts. We are not simply learning about God. Here's the deal. This isn't simply a record of the fact that God has spoken. It is a record of the fact that God is still speaking. Because through this word, he will speak to you. Through his holy, inspired inerrant, authoritative word, he continues to speak to you. Because go back to where we began. God loves you. 
He is revealing himself to you. He wants you to live in a relationship with him. And so he's made himself knowable, understandable, and he's given you this word to say, I want you to know me. But if that is the case, then we should submit to it. And so that's really my question this morning is, have you submitted to the Bible? Not not to me or to a church, but, but to his word. Have you submitted your life to his word? Thomas Jefferson famously uh, took his Bible and any verse he didn't like, he just cut it out. Like literally just cut it out. Much thinner Bible, right? You didn't get a thick Bible. We got a thin Bible. And, and you might say, Adam, I would never do that. Except in practice, we do that all the time. I love that verse that says God is love, but this one, mm, that's a little uncomfortable. I don't want to listen to that. We don't get that option. If this is God's word, I don't stand in judgment on it. It gets to stand in judgment over me and teach me and lead me because God is speaking through his word to me. Therefore, I submit and say, God, show me who you are through this word. This is why we're going to look at it every single week. This is why we encourage you to read and to study. And look, as you have questions, because I know you still got questions, wrestle with them. Don't just write it off and push it off to the side. Wrestle with those questions. Look, read it. Don't wait until all your questions are answered before you actually start reading it. Read whatever you need, but read the Bible as well and let God reveal himself to you because you and I will never figure this out on our own. But God has revealed himself to us through his word because he loves us. So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. In just a moment, we're going to close in song. And we're going to have an opportunity to worship the Lord. But let me just ask you that question. Do you actually believe that the Bible is God's holy, inerrant, authoritative word to you? And if not, why not? I mean, don't just push it off for yet another year or decade. Like, why not? Have you wrestled with these questions? Have you asked? Have you talked about it? Have you prayed through it? Have you been willing to actually read the Bible anyway? And let the Holy Spirit, the one who wrote it, speak to you. Because that's why he gave it. Because he wants you to know him. Because he loves you. And God is drawing you to himself through his word. Why would we not read? Why would we not listen? Why would we not obey? And so if you have a question, why don't you just lift it up to God? Say, God, I want to believe that, but this is a roadblock. Would you help me? Or maybe you've just been dancing around the Bible. Maybe it's time to dive in and say, I I know I want to read and and let the Lord speak to me and learn things you've never known before. But let's choose to trust him knowing that the whole reason he gives it to you in the first place is because he loves you and he wants you to know him. And so Father, speak to us, help us, encourage us. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us because we would never have figured it out on our own and and we can't force you. You just chose to come and reveal yourself to us. And so thank you. Father, is there any places where we we, we doubt or we have issues or concerns? Lord, work with us. Help us. Clear those things up. Point us to the right people and books and, and resources and conversations that can help us, Father, put our full faith and trust, not just in you, but in what you have said. And Lord, help us as your people to follow after you and do what you say. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray.